And I want to then shift gears to this conversation about why does this even matter for us here and now? Why are we even talking about this? Aside from just answering the question that you guys gave. I think the tension that we find in today's conversation in a lot of ways stems from the same tension that we all feel in the world around us. We all have this issue in society that I think that we need to recognize, and I think it needs to be a good preface for us to provide some caveats for this conversation. Because there's some things I think everyone here needs to learn to commit to. See, right now in society, we face this massive division across ideological and political lines where our disagreements that we face that are steeped in our ideology and our worldviews, our perspectives, unfortunately have brought us to this place that instead of working through disagreements, we've learned to just create everything to be divisive. We instead have allowed division to become the normal mode of operation for us. See, the problem with this is we get in the habit of drawing battle lines over everything that we disagree with, and we start to demonize and villainize people that are on the opposite side of our viewpoint. And then the danger that we fall into is that when we villainize and demonize people, we naturally forget an incredibly crucial part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We live our lives in a way that shows people the value that they have to God. By living our lives in a loving way that's characterized by the hope found in Jesus. And unfortunately, what division does is division communicates that the people who disagree with us on the other side of the aisle might not have the same value to God that we have. It communicates that maybe they're not as worthy of the redemption that Jesus has offered us. So, Learning how to disagree with other people in a loving way so that they can have a relationship with Jesus is so incredibly important. Especially to the witness that we have for Jesus. This is such an important lesson for us to learn, especially as we begin to have conversations that have slightly higher stakes than dinosaurs. In fact, next week, Pastor Lawrence is going to be bringing a message and a conversation about the LGBTQ community. Can we learn how to love people in the midst of our disagreement so that we can show them Jesus? Because I promise you, at the end of the day, Jesus is the one who's going to change people's hearts, minds, and lifestyles, not our ability to argue with people on Facebook and Instagram. That's not going to be the thing that wins people over for Jesus. So consider today to be a primer for those future conversations that we're going to have. Because today we're going to be looking at two different perspectives on creation, two different perspectives on dinosaurs, and these perspectives disagree with each other. But the thing is, neither of these perspectives necessarily have a direct impact on salvation. They don't necessarily impact a relationship with Jesus. So, can we set aside our specific viewpoints in order to love each other? The truth is, you can use the Bible to defend both of these viewpoints. There's no direct prescription in Scripture that says you have to believe this one. So let's remember that even in the middle of this disagreement, we are still believers, we still both follow Jesus, and we're both still working together to further the impact the kingdom of God. So can we agree to that today? Can we agree to have this ability to disagree with each other, to be able to love each other, and still follow Jesus, and to work for His kingdom? All right, so here we go. Like I said, today we're going to be looking at two different viewpoints and when it comes to this idea of creation and this idea of dinosaurs. 
Uh, and to kick that off, we need to look at where both these viewpoints start. They both start in the creation narrative that happens in the beginning of the book of Genesis. So we are going to start today in Genesis chapter 1. Um, I'm going to read parts of it, and then I'm going to paraphrase, because if I spent the whole time reading it, I wouldn't be able to talk about dinosaurs very much. So we're going to dive into this. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Genesis starts, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning on the first day. On day two, God goes on to create the atmosphere, separates the atmosphere from the rest of the planet. On day three, God creates land from the water. On day four, God creates all plant life. On day five, God sets up the day-night cycle as well as a seasonal shifting of the earth. On day six, God creates all of the swimming creatures in the ocean and the flying creatures of the air. And then in verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The interpretation of this passage is what leads to these two viewpoints. And the two viewpoints that we are going to be looking at today is the literal day view, and we are going to be looking at the day age view. Both of these are creationist viewpoints, meaning both of these start with the understanding that God is the one who's created the universe, and he's created all things in it. So both of these viewpoints start at that point. And then the way in which Genesis 1 is interpreted is where we get these two different viewpoints on creation and therefore these two different viewpoints on where the dinosaurs fit. How do we get the dinosaurs to line up in the Bible? So I'm going to give you a quick uh, overview of each of these and then we'll dive in and do some details on them. So literal seven-day view would be the view where the days mentioned in the book of Genesis are literal 24-hour periods of time where God created So each day, the way it says it, that's how it happened. That's exactly it. Um, This view, along with uh, a viewpoint of the different genealogies throughout the Bible, are often referred to as a young earth creationist viewpoint, meaning that the earth is really only 6,000 to 12,000 years old, and God created everything at the beginning of of time, which would have been 6,000 to 12,000 years ago. In this perspective, humans and dinosaurs would have coexisted at the same time on day six of creation. So dinosaurs and humans walk together, live together. We're going to unpack that in a little bit. The other theory we're going to look at today is this day-age theory. This theory states that the days mentioned in Genesis aren't necessarily 24-hour periods of time. In fact, each of these days were more likely millions of years old. So the earth has the potential to be billions of years old. Therefore, this would be called an old earth creationist viewpoint. In this viewpoint, day six, when all of mankind is, or when all of creatures on land are created, 
Dinosaurs would have been created and over the course of a million years, millions of years, gone extinct and then man was created. So this is the general theory of this viewpoint. I think it's important to note that one of the major factors in this viewpoint is that they tend to view uh, the book of Genesis more and this, this narrative of creation more as a logical viewpoint of creation that highlights the amazing creativity of God, that highlights the um, care and intricacy of how he developed the universe, and less about a time period that was seven days that creation occurred in. It's more about telling the story that reveals the character of God and the redemptive plan of God in this viewpoint than it is about describing the form and function of all of creation. Otherwise, the argument that they would make would be, why not include math and physics and all of these things that we recognize as kind of the way in which the world functions in the day-to-day? So the function of the Bible was to tell God's redemptive plan and to tell God's story, not necessarily to give the described exact detail of every little element of creation. That would be an argument that's made. So when it comes to dinosaurs, in this perspective, they would have existed before mankind for millions of years, died off, and then man was created. We're going to take a look at this perspective first. And we're going to look at some of the strengths, weaknesses of this, and then we'll move on and talk about the literal day perspective as well. The day-age theory begins with this reality that God exists outside of time. The time for God is not the same way time exists for us, so therefore a 24-hour period of time, maybe from God's perspective, is millions of years. Uh, that, that is one of the, the kind of starting points for this conversation. And it does seem to reconcile the biblical creative narrative along with a lot of scientific discovery and thought process. So this is where this, this theory kind of seems like it holds some water because the biblical account of creation and comically, commonly held scientific belief seem like they can merge together and explain one another. For example, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Well, in the scientific community, the creation event is something that's called the Big Bang. And the Big Bang is this event that occurs where from a central point, point in time and space, all of creation all of a sudden exists. The interesting thing about this scientific perspective is scientists will say the earth has a, or the universe has a very definite beginning in time and space. Even those who do not believe in God say that there's a definite beginning. The difference being that they say, well, we don't know what caused that. It seems like it just happened by chance. That's what the Big Bang was. Something just, it's luck. We're all here because of luck. Whereas someone who believes in God, first and foremost, can look at that and read Genesis and go, that sounds like the creation story of God. Another scientific uh, thought process and discovery that would line up with this is something that's known as the Cambrian explosion. So the Cambrian explosion is a thing within fossil records. And the way fossils work and the way that time is judged through fossils is the differing layers of fossils would be different periods of time. And the Cambrian period of time is the first period where any sort of life is seen. Organisms are seen. Whether they be single cell, multi-cell, whatever. Cambrian period is the first time we see that stuff. So prior to that, for millions and millions and millions and millions of years, the fossil record shows nothing, and then all of a sudden, all at once, boom, life everywhere. That seems to line up with the creation narrative. When God creates the living creatures, living organisms. There are many more examples of this where science can line up with this viewpoint, this day-age theory. Um, The interesting thing is it's actually not a very new viewpoint. Even prior to our scientific discoveries of these things, 
Um, this viewpoint has existed for a long time. Uh, St. Augustine in the 4th and 5th centuries spoke of some, something that was somewhat similar. He did affirm a literal translation of Genesis, but when it came to the creation narrative, Augustine said it's a lot less about time and, and a seven-day period, but more about the logical order of creation for which God created it. In fact, he also encouraged people to learn to recognize when extra-biblical sources, so things outside of the Bible, describe something that seemed like it could help reveal more about the reality of who God is, who the Creator is. <laughs> so when this viewpoint is applied to dinosaurs, the understanding would be much more in line with commonly held scientific belief. The dinosaurs existed, they lived for millions of years, they died, and then mankind was created. This also leads to probably one of the most compelling challenges to this viewpoint. Because if death doesn't exist in creation until mankind sins, how could the dinosaurs have died prior to mankind's fall? One of the common, and common uh, arguments to try and overcome this thought is that maybe death was a normal function of creation with the exception of mankind because mankind was made in the image of God. And they oftentimes will use Genesis 1.30, just a few verses after this, to help explain this. In Genesis 1.30, God gives plants for the animals and for people to eat. Well, first off, what's the need to eat if not to stay alive? But then second off, once a plant is eaten, doesn't it die? So death may have existed within creation. And so, maybe mankind was the only one exempt from death. And sin just led to mankind's death, not the rest of creation. That would be one of the arguments made. Another supporting argument uh, for this, or another tension rather, that occurs in this viewpoint, and this is one that I think is really important, is if one's view of Scripture is purely based off of whether it lines up with scientific reason or not, then you find yourself in a place of shifting sands because science in its purest form is meant to change. It is meant to develop. It is meant to grow because science is just a way in which we observe the world around us and explain what's going on. So naturally, as more methods are, are brought out and more abilities to understand things come out, then viewpoints change and shift as they should. So if you start with science and then say that it has to inform Scripture, then when science changes, then Scripture has to change. And so you have this constant shifting sands tension. I think, however, the opposite, though, is, is true as well. If you start from a perspective where God is creator and you know that God is creator, then when you look at science, instead of it being the shifting sand that you have to try and make line up, you can go, man, look at how God did this. The observations then inform what God has done, not the other way around. So quick summary here, dinosaurs, they would have been created prior to mankind because the time period wasn't a literal day, it was potentially millions of years, dinosaurs died off, then mankind was created. That's one viewpoint. Now, for the sake of time, let's move on, literal day viewpoint then. Literal day viewpoint, all of the days of creation are a literal 24-hour period of time. That means dinosaurs and mankind are created on the same day, day six, which means they would have coexisted and lived with one another. There seems to be some evidence for that within the context of Scripture. In the book of Job, there is a creature that God mentions, the behemoth. And when you read the description of this creature, it seems to line up rather closely 
with a sauropod dinosaur. So a brontosaurus, a brachiosaurus. If you've ever seen Jurassic Park, it's that first dinosaur they see, the giant one that's eating out of the trees, and they're all like taking glasses off, and whoa, dinosaur. So the book of Job seems to be describing this. He also describes a Leviathan, which seems like it may be a water-dwelling version of this. There are multiple places throughout Scripture. Now, mind you, they are usually in poetic verse, and poetry isn't necessarily meant to be taken as a one-to-one, but there's multiple places throughout the Bible where animals are described that in early English translations of the Bible were actually translated as dragons. So there is potential that even Scripture holds some evidence that mankind and dinosaurs were side by side. So, obviously, that means after the fall, mankind would have been living some Jurassic Park stuff, right? (laughs) Running from dinosaurs, trying to stay alive, being pretty terrified, I would think. Um, Especially if, if, once again, you've seen those fossils, I wouldn't want to be around that. So, in order to kind of explain that, luckily that wouldn't have been a terribly long period of time Um, at least in the grand scope of things, because it would have only happened up until the point of the Noahic flood. So the Noahic flood, the flood of Noah, would have by and large killed out most of the dinosaurs that existed, with the exception of those that were brought on the ark. And the argument for this would be that the ark didn't have to contain two of every single dinosaur. It just needed to contain two dinosaurs. In the same way that the ark would have only needed two dogs, right? You wouldn't have needed two of every breed of dog, you would just need two dogs from which the modern equivalent of every breed of dog we have now exists. The same could be said for dinosaurs, and so the modern relatives of alligators, crocodiles, those sort of things may be dinosaurs. The reason then why dinosaurs never would have evolved to be what they once were, these giant creatures, would be because post-flood conditions of the, wor- of the world would not have been as conducive to that style of living. Uh-oh, I use that E-word, evolved. You're not supposed to say that in church, right? When I say evolved here, I'm talking about something that's called microevolution, which is something that we've been able to observe for a long time. And that's when a species adapts to survive better in a given environment. It's not a species becoming another species. That's called macroevolution. This is microevolution, a species changing so that they can better survive in a given environment. So one of the tensions that comes up with this viewpoint, the flood can definitely explain fossil records and layers, but we've never actually found human remains next to a dinosaur. It just never happened. One of the possible reasons for this might be just the way that fossils tend to work. See, only about 5% of fossils are dinosaurs. Most fossils are small little organisms, marine animals, things like that. And so fossils, dinosaur fossils really aren't as prominent as we'd like to think. And the pre-flood population of humanity would not have been very big. It wouldn't have been huge. So it's possible they just haven't been found yet. It might exist. It may not. It's hard to say. So it's not too far-fetched to think that we just haven't figured it out. Another tension, though, would be there do seem to be some relatively good methods for understanding the age of things and to be able to test the age of things, like carbon dating and some other things that are out there. And so you have to then question, how do we say the Earth is this young if we've got all these methods? Well, the truth is, God would have created the earth to be mature. He created humanity to be mature. mature. He didn't create humanity as infants. He created them as fully grown, thinking people. As well as the animals, right? The chicken would have come before the egg. That's what would have happened. God created things to be fully mature in function and appearance. So we call this the appearance of age whenever you're talking in this type of realm. So, 
the world appears to be of these ages, though it was just created with maturity, if that makes sense. Once again, there's a ton more nuance to this. There's a lot more we could dive into. I am really just scratching the surface on this topic. Um, there's so much we could get into. But in summary, this viewpoint, dinosaurs would have coexisted with mankind up until the flood, and then post-flood they remain as the smaller ancestors, crocodiles, alligators, Komodo dragons, those sort of things. All right, let's take a deep breath. Has a lot of information, right? 20 minutes of just a fire hose blasting you in the face with all of that. Why would we take this much time to talk about this on a Sunday morning, right? Why would we do this aside from the fact that you asked for it? Uh, Why is this conversation important? I think the biggest reason this conversation is important is mirrored in what Paul has to say in the book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says these things after he's just gone and he's talked about the freedoms he has in Christ. He's talked about some of his background and some reasons he has to brag because he has been a Pharisee, he's a Roman citizen, he's got all these things. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, Paul says this. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. In the end of the day, that's why this discussion and discussions like this are important. Because it helps us become better witnesses for Jesus. It helps us be able to share Jesus with people. It's not so much about our specific beliefs about creation. What I want to emphasize here is our ability to have conversation. To be loving with the people that we disagree with. Alongside that, the more that we understand about viewpoints that we don't hold ourselves, the more that we can empathize and recognize the innate value that people have to God. All people have value to God, so love those you disagree with in a way that displays that value. All people have value to God, so love those you disagree with in a way that displays that value. This means the age-old argument of science versus faith, I think, is probably a lot more detrimental than it is beneficial. See, we have this penchant to set up dualities within our world. And I think a conversation like this is so important because it can remind us of the mission that God has placed on our lives as followers of Jesus. Now, what do I mean by this penchant towards duality? See, like I said earlier, our world is very characterized by division. And I think part of the reason for that is we like to set up these dual systems, these dualities, because it's a little bit easier for us to navigate. We like black and white over the gray area, because black and white is a lot more simple than gray. Right and wrong feels a lot more simple than the space in between. But oftentimes, that is not actually how the world functions. We have to be careful not to fall into these systems of duality. And as Christians, we've done a bit of a disservice to our witness 
Because we have removed ourselves from cultural conversations by remaining ignorant of the knowledge that the world is seeking. Some of that's because we created this false argument of science versus religion and science versus faith. We think there is no way for us to understand and in many cases believe things that are in the scientific world and also have faith. But I think that it's really far from the truth to believe that. I think we are called to it by God because it impacts the way in which that we can have conversation with the world around us. That's why Paul says he becomes all things to all people so that they can see Jesus. When Paul goes to Athens and he's talking to the people in Athens, he doesn't do so by first throwing the Bible at them and and telling them who God is. He starts by talking to them about their gods at their level. He says, hey, I see that you worship all of these beings. You know who that unknown God is that you're worshiping? Well, I do. He's the creator of the universe, and I even know his name. It's Jesus. Paul uses the common knowledge of the day, the knowledge he did not agree with, but he used it in order to help people experience Jesus, to know who Jesus was. We need to learn how to have informed conversation, sometimes at a scientific level, so that it can open the door for us to have conversations about Jesus. Because when we bury our heads in the sand, we refuse to engage the culture in conversation, whether it be about science, whether it be about sexuality, whether it be about identity, and we do so ignorant of the views that the world's holding, we are being removed from the conversation before it even happens. To wrap things up, I have a hypothetical question for us. I need to emphasize how hypothetical this question is because I don't want emails. I don't want to get yelled at for this. But hypothetically, if your viewpoint on creation were proven without a shadow of a doubt to be wrong, say evolution, that all of creation has evolved interspecies, is proven without a doubt to be true, does it change who God is? Does it change who God says he is? The book of Job, I think, is is a great indicator of the hard attitude that we need to learn to take in this. Since we talked about the behemoth and the Leviathan from there, I think it's appropriate to move into this. See, the book of Job, Job is um, afflicted with terrible things. He's lost his family. He's lost lost all of his belongings. (coughs) His health has been completely wrecked. And all the people around him are saying, what did you do wrong? You must have done something to make God mad, otherwise this wouldn't be happening. And so for the better part of 40 chapters of the book, he complains about his life. And he whines about how terrible things are. And he asks God, why'd you do this to me? Why'd you do this to me? He's complaining and whining. And when God finally answers, God doesn't actually answer the questions he's asking. What God says is, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I set things into motion? Can you control the behemoth? Can you catch the Leviathan? Who do you think you are? Job's response is the hard attitude we need to learn how to take. Job says, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you, make it known, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust 
and ashes. This response leads God to return to Job everything he's lost twofold. God is so much greater than our man-made attempts to understand him and his creation. That doesn't mean we stop trying. That doesn't mean that we ignore all of this. But it means we need to keep him and our relationship with Jesus at the front and center of our identity. When this is the case, when these cases of outlier things, though are important, these outlier things don't need to hinder our witness to Jesus. But instead, they can become tools to help us tell the story of God. Tell the amazing story about how the God who designed the universe, who designed all things, created all things, desperately wants a deep personal relationship with us. That's what matters. That's what makes this conversation important. It's about declaring the glory of God. And in declaring the glory of God, we can show people who Jesus is. Otherwise, we are just wasting our time. We're wrestling over things that are meaningless. Dinosaurs may or may not have walked with mankind. Is this an issue that you're willing to set aside if it means that someone else can see Jesus? It doesn't mean you have to change your personal belief. It doesn't mean you need to change your perspective. It just means placing the appropriate weight on the importance of your belief so that Jesus can shine through in the way in which you love the people you disagree with. All people have value to God. So love people in a way that displays that value. Let me pray for us. Father God, I praise you and thank you so much that you have brought us to this place at this time so that we can have a conversation like this because you have created us for reason. You have created us to be able to understand some of these things, God. We thank you so much that you have allowed us to have that kind of mind and that kind of thinking. And Father God, we thank you for the redemptive relationship with Jesus you've given us. Don't let us squander our witness for you by being caught up in our disagreements and our division. Lord, we just pray that you help each and every one of us find ways to have conversation to love on the people around us, to help them see your face. Lord God, we love you and we pray all this in your mighty and holy name. Amen.